Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by executive editor Alexander Forbes. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Alex. Market editor Anna Louise Sussman. Hi, Isaac. Hello, Anna. And director of the Armory Show, Ben Ginocchio. Hi, Isaac. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So today we're going to be talking about the future of art fairs. International art fairs are an increasingly dominant part of the art world and art market. They're now over 250 worldwide, up from a handful uh, 15 years ago. So, Ben, you wrote a piece for us uh, recently about the future of art fairs. I sketched out a little bit of the present in that intro, but maybe you can talk a little bit more about what the landscape looks like today and how art fairs factor into the overall art market. Yeah, you know, I spent so many years uh, working in journalism, and one of the things that you learn I guess, as a practicing journalist writing about the art world is, is in a way that you want to be asking the right questions. And as somebody who is a former journalist and has the responsibility today of administering a major international art fair, you know, I kind of wanted to be thinking, okay, well, how is this business going to evolve and what's it going to look like tomorrow? And one of the reasons I wrote that article in a way was not to say that I really had the answers as to what an art fair would look like tomorrow, but in a way to say, okay, let's get the questions right and begin to say to ourselves, okay, if these art fairs are going to be cultural institutions of tomorrow, then what do we want them to look like? And in a way, I knew what I didn't want them to look like, and that was just like a shopping mall. And I felt that we, as people that are interested in art and invested in ideas and objects and images, as well as the monetary value of artworks, we could ask for more from our art fairs. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone in this room is kind of a well-traveled art fair denizen, but for maybe some of our listeners who aren't familiar with the typical art fair, can you maybe just sketch out what art fairs kind of look like today? Well, they're a basic business and a boring business. Essentially, you're renting floor plan to exhibitors. So the galleries are your clients. They're paying a price per square foot to participate. And one of the first things I noticed when I took over the Armory Show was that essentially it didn't matter how big or small you were as a gallery, you essentially paid the same price per square foot to participate. And, you know, there was some variation, but regardless of the price of the art you sold, you still paid a premium to participate. So that sort of seemed wrong to me to begin with because the economics of running a small gallery on the Lower East Side are very different to running a major gallery in Chelsea. And so one of the things that I felt responsible for as a fair director was to create a tiered system. And I've worked on this over the past two years. The first thing I did was for the young galleries, galleries less than 10 years old, I reduced the price of participation around 30%. And I created a prize for those young dealers. It's the Athena Art Prize. And essentially, we give one of them their money back. And I wasn't able to do more than that in the first year, but this year I'm very proud to say that we retooled the focus section, which is our curated section, and there I reduced the price of participation by around 25% and doubled the number of galleries we can include and then created a three-tiered structure for participation. So essentially there was a place you could graduate to once you were more than 10 years old. So I think in, in the past or in terms of most fair businesses, they've not really been thinking about the client participation level. And that's in part because there's just been a slow creep 
in the price of participation in art fairs to a point where I think, as, as we all know, and certainly I know both of you here have written about this as well, that a lot of galleries really struggle. So maybe you could provide a little feedback on that, that you're getting from galleries at different areas. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that people have cited most frequently over the past year and change as more and more galleries have closed is the price of participation. And not only the price of participation, but also the number of art fairs that they're having to participate in in a given year. You know, that price varies wildly. The Armory Show has very expensive real estate, so it's one of the more expensive fairs to participate in. And I think it's very interesting to find new ways. I remember you saying last year, it's kind of wrong if one gallery can go in and make a few million dollars very easily on their five or six figure investment in the fair. And another gallery has, you know, maximal opportunity of making maximum a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, And that's, you know, completely selling out a few times. But it feels like there's still a long way to go in not only the pricing, but also the format, the frequency of participation. I know a lot of galleries have said that, you know, they keep applying to as many as possible because they're not sure which they're going to get into. The politics are oftentimes very complicated. Um, and so it gets them into a cycle where they don't really have that much control over the amount that they're spending on an annual basis on you know, this marketing and sales platform. Can we put a figure on the cost of participation in an art fair? Well, I mean, most of the major fairs and, uh, you know, they're running at around 75 to to $100 a square foot. So you can just average it out from there. 1,000 square feet is going to cost you anywhere between 75 and 100000 Some fairs, in a way, don't disclose up front the total cost. They then charge you 500 bucks a light. You may need 30 or 40 lights. Uh, you know, to paint a wall in Basel, that can be 6,000 Swiss francs. You know, so the, the labor costs for additional booth build-outs can be significant based on the location. And so they end up spending another 25, 30% on top of their participation charge just simply for the booth build-out. I remember a friend was telling me that did a performance at Basel and he and his gallery thought this was going to be really exciting. And then they got the bill for how much it costs to repaint the wall that he had drawn on and weren't potentially as excited about that in retrospect. To follow up on that, um, so you were saying the smaller galleries might pay around 30% less than that. Where does that leave a gallery that's selling works for, say, five to $15,000? And how do you work with those galleries you know, to make sure that they're getting visibility or they're going to have a positive fair experience, even a profitable one? And how does that compare with sort of how you relate or perhaps have to handle with kid gloves the more high-profile galleries that are also expecting a certain level of service? You know, I think that's a very good question. And the service is often tailored to the level of financial participation. So certainly a lot of the energy goes into taking care of the high rollers. I mean, in some ways, it seems to me that the fair model is pretty much uh, structured around the model of a casino these days, that in a way you take care of the high rollers and everyone else is there for the show. And I mean that in terms of the galleries that participate, but also the buyers that are there, you know, essentially the big casinos, they want the whales to come and bet at their table. And that's how a lot of fairs operate essentially that they're structured around getting a core group of large galleries and then finding the clients for those galleries because that's really the sort of reputation of the fair and it's interesting the way in which 
what you'd call a kind of status anxiety is so prevalent throughout the art world. And I didn't really have much of a sense of that before taking over the art fair. But, you know, dealers and artists are, are, are driven in part by that sense of their status within the overall ecology and who they're next to in a fair, who else is participating, what artists they bring, very often can determine a decision about participation or not. And this seems like a slightly amorphous subject, but it's very important, I think, in terms of their reputation uh, and their sense of who they are and how they relate to the art world as a whole. And in part, I think it's a big part of the selling strategy too. How do you negotiate those queries and requests from your participants? You know, it takes a lot of time, you know, and in a way, they're the clients for the fair. And I think it's very important that you visit them in their galleries, that you have a sense of their program, that you have an understanding of their mission as a dealer so that you can better serve them as a client. But doesn't everyone want to be right when you come in, in the center? <laughs> well, uh, yes, you know, I think <laughs> there's a... Uh, there are overlapping needs and, you know, obviously we can't take care of everybody in the same way. I mean, the challenge for a fair director in a way is that you have 200 clients, but you just have 200 clients all on the same day, right? And so being able to service those clients in the way they need really is the challenge. But in my view, I think if you have an understanding of their program, if you visited each of them in their space and you know in a way what their strengths are as a gallery, you can help them understand how they can leverage that particular fare for what they need. What are some things you tell the smaller galleries, especially the medium-sized galleries, especially at this moment where a lot of them seem to be struggling? Well, I think the key thing to tell a gallery is don't treat your booth as a microcosm of the fair, okay? That is, don't put in one of everything that you show. Try to understand what it is that you do and do well and that no one else will have so that you can put your best foot forward. And in some ways, yes, that's putting a lot of your eggs in one basket or two baskets if it's two artists. But in a way, what you're also doing is saying, okay, this is what makes me distinct and relevant in a vast and complicated sort of smorgasbord of art presentations. And that way you can stand out. And your booth may not be for everybody, but for those that appreciate and understand the work that you show, then you're really creating clients and relationships with clients that long-term are going to benefit your business. Is there an awareness at the very top about the perils that the feeder galleries are facing and what, yeah. if anything, is being done to support them? The larger galleries need this farm system you know, to be vibrant and they, you need um, emerging galleries and um, smaller galleries, younger people, you know, cultivating a new generation of artists. And then you also need medium-sized galleries and you need galleries in cities that aren't just New York. I mean, there's a narrative that a lot of, the, you know, anything below the very top, top, top of the market is struggling to stay afloat. So what awareness, if any, is there on the part of these bigger galleries what their competitors I mean I'm sure they're aware of the overall situation for dealers and I'm not even sure it's the responsibility of a gallery dealer no matter how successful they are to take care of dealers at other points throughout the spectrum I think it's probably more on the shoulders of fair organizers to be a little bit more responsible about the support of galleries at different 
sectors of the art world. So I don't really see it as the responsibility of dealers to take care of the ecosystem. I see it more as a responsibility of fair directors, but also collectors, essentially, to support younger galleries. And in part, that's coming back to fairs, creating opportunities for participation at a price point that makes sense. Yeah, and actually something you said, Anna, is quite interesting because even the fact that it is a feeder model, which is, I think, an accurate characterization of where we're at right now, is one of the biggest issues for those medium size and smaller galleries because the mega galleries are swooping up their artists and taking out that moment in time where you can actually get the return on your many years of investment when you're losing a ton of money on most of the artists in your program. That as you said, Ben, isn't something that we're probably going to see dealers be able to actively fix because markets act the way that they act and inserting any kind of irrational behavior into them isn't probably going to be good for anybody. But is there, aside from the price of the fares themselves, are there other ways in which they can be restructured to help support these galleries to make a more, I guess, vibrant art world? I mean, essentially what we're talking about is making art fairs more fair, all right? And I think in some ways that's a slightly utopian ideal because markets are not fair, as we know. They're vicious and competitive. And the idea that somehow we could or should structure the art market in such a way that it really is a more democratic model is a wonderful idea. But I think, you know, in reality, that's probably not going to happen. I think what is happening is that dealers in those uh, difficult areas of the market have decided, you know what, we've had enough and we're going to take the situation into our own hands and we're either going to start our own fairs or we're going to start an experiment with different kinds of fairs like the Proyectos model in Los Angeles at the moment that essentially is a kind of a selling exhibition or the condo model that may or may not deliver a a strong financial result for a dealer, but at the same time their cost structure is low or next to nothing so that if they don't succeed, then they really haven't lost a lot of money. I think that's really the challenge in a way is that not all dealers are eligible for financing and so are not able to speculate on fares in the way that the top end of the market is. They're able to throw a large amount of money at a fare and say, okay, I'm throwing this out there, and if I sell and do well, then I make money. If I don't, then I've basically lost my investment. And that, in a way, is really a roulette model. And you can only really do that if you have sufficient cash flow. And so I think a lot of dealers are saying, look, I'm just not comfortable with that level of financial risk. I'd like a model where I didn't have to bet the barn every time I participated in a fair. And so I think that's led to all kinds of interesting and new models for fairs. The reality for me as a fair operator is that in spite of those new models, fairs still remain the most powerful platforms for sales of artwork. And so on the one hand, I'm sympathetic to dealers who are looking for new models, but at the same time, a lot of sales increasingly are happening at fairs. And it seems to me that the trend is they're going to continue to happen at fairs. So my role and responsibility is to say, okay, how can I be a responsible citizen for the art world as a whole, but at the same time running a business in which I'm renting real estate? 
Can you talk a little bit more about the clients and the whales and how do you draw in, well, what kind of fish did you say was medium-sized? The, like striped the sea bass, bass, right? <laughs> or the guppies. Between the minnows yeah. and, the, and, how, and the whales. Yeah, how do you bring those people in and educate them, you know, newer buyers and encourage them? You know, this is someone who's not going to walk up to Gagosian and hand over their black card, but, you know, who's maybe looking to buy something for the first time. How do you um, ensure that they know what they're looking at, that they give, they, they take a chance on a smaller gallery? How do you cultivate those collectors? I think our job as fair directors in a way is to create that opportunity to bring people into the space and then start those conversations. Obviously, we want clients to be interacting with dealers and buying at the fair, and that's a big part of why dealers return to fairs so long as they're selling uh, and meeting new clients. And I think increasingly, uh, that's what the bigger dealers want from fairs is they want relationships with new clients. And so... Most fairs are aggressively trying to cultivate new collectors and new audiences because they're aware that there are a group of collectors at the top end that everybody knows and want, but at the same time, they're tapped out. You know, they're attending too many fairs already. Uh, They're being solicited by hundreds of galleries constantly. So most fairs are looking to try to cultivate new collectors who are just beginning on the journey of collecting because... There are few affairs that essentially have their contact details that they, in a sense, want to connect them up with their clients at their fair. What I think is interesting is because of our Basel and Miami Beach, and I guess to a large extent also the Basel phenomenon of just extremely rapid early sales. If you don't buy it now, it's going to be gone in 35 seconds. You know, I've got another buyer lined up right behind you. There's this expectation that that falls across all other fairs. Most fairs, in my experience, people kind of sell throughout the run of it. Definitely in the past couple of years, it's been a little bit more of a slow burn across all of them. And I was curious to what extent your kind of idea of building fairs as more of a cultural institution, I guess in tandem with them being a marketplace, was about this idea of, you know, the more times that you get somebody through the door and in front of something almost in the same way that like via programmatic advertising that, you know, thing that you looked at on Amazon follows you around the web, the more likely they'll be to actually, you know, set up a wire transfer and buy it. I think there's a little bit of that with the Armory Show. Uh, This is a very different fair, as I've written about before, from other fair models. We're a fair that trades on a city. We don't create a Potemkin Village art world in a regional location, set it up for five days, then as soon as the fair is over, shut it down and take it away. Now, the whole Basel franchise business is built on that model, which is essentially let's find a city with good infrastructure, leverage that infrastructure, and then create this event. But that's predicated on getting people to go to these places and buy the artwork, okay? And that's why there's such an enormous infrastructure in the Basel business devoted to getting collectors to fly to these cities, Hong Kong, Basel, Miami, in order to buy the artwork. And these are big fairs, almost 300 galleries. So that's a lot of mouths to feed. That's why they've got 35, 36 VIP ambassadors, why they're interested in buying stakes in regional fairs, because they can't cultivate buyers fast enough and in the volume they need to deliver collectors to their events. So their business is a little bit different. Um, The business at the Armory Show is... We're a fair in New York. You know, we've probably got more collectors between here and and Greenwich, you know, than there are between London and Poland. 
So for us, it's a little bit different. We're looking to basically try to tease these people out from whatever they're doing that day, from the 500 galleries that there are in New York, from the 10 other fairs that are going on in New York at the same time, and in a way get them to come to the Armory Show and buy from our clients. But that, to some extent, is about luck and timing. Some years they come, some years they don't. Um, But at the same time, we're working very hard in a way to understand who our core audience is, which is basically the New York City environments, which is New Jersey, Connecticut, Westchester, Boston, Midwest, uh, Philadelphia, Washington, and in a way build relationships with the people that live in and around where we have our fair because essentially it's easy for them to come to the Armory Show. They don't need an $800 a night hotel room in Miami, right, for the first week in December. They don't need to fly to Hong Kong. So in a way I think going forward – I'm interested in the way in which these regional fairs, and essentially we're all regional fairs, can service an audience and a client base in the region in which they're located. And long-term, I think that's a better sell to a collector than trying to get them to have to fly to a remote city somewhere and stay there for three to four days and pay a premium for the hotel room. So for me, I think you know my business model is to go deeper and connect with New York. We're just very lucky we happen to be located in the world's most important regional market for art. But sort of just returning to the ideal, you know, if, if you were able to design an, an art fair from the ground up, what would you do differently, maybe even small tweaks that you would make or huge changes? What's sort of your vision in the future? Yeah, I mean, again, it's a good question. And I think, um, you know, I'm not sure my answer is going to be any more interesting or relevant than than an answer by everyone else around the table. So let me throw it back to you. And uh, Once I've been put on the spot, I'd like to put you all on the spot as well. You're not allowed uh, to do that. Uh, I'm that's not great. allowed no, to do that no, at all. No, you can. You can. But, you know, uh, at least I can poach your ideas if they're any good. But um, <laughs> I think you want to begin with the idea of a journey. I think you want to begin in a different place. You know, you don't want to begin with the floor plan as a grid that you sell. That's where every fair begins, and I think that's where the first mistake happens. Then you want to begin with the idea that the experience is textured and varied. And you also want to start with the idea that this is an art experience, not a mall experience. How you begin to flow or structure the fair out from there, I think you'd need to experiment with a number of different models, but the first place to go is the floor plan. We need a different floor plan, and I think that sounds obvious, Um, but the homogeneity and lack of variety in most fairs comes from a really boring gridded floor plan. So if we can begin to think about a different kind of experience within the fair, a different look and feel, and then a kind of journey through the space, I think we're in a different and more positive place. And I certainly think that one of the great contributions that the Freeze franchise made was in a way to say, okay, we're going to try to structure a different fair experience in a tent. Now, there are all kinds of problems associated with being in a tent, but I think they were the first to really ask the right question in relation to the venue. What they didn't get right was that they were building a brand that was a very contemporary brand, and so they ended up with a whole bunch of booths in which you know, the paint was still drying on almost every work, and so you ended up with a fair in which all the booths looked the same. And so they've had to expand their idea of what they want a fair experience to be in terms of the clients for the fair and build that out. And I think that's going to create a better experience for the visitor. But they were really the first ones to try to look at the fair as an experience to really 
take a look at the food that was served at a fair, to treat it as a venue for performance. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that you could basically get a sausage and that was it at Basel for lunch out in the square. And they've come a long way too in terms of building out the overall experience. And so I think there are a lot of very smart, talented, hardworking people running good fairs around the world who are asking this question. And I think that the progress here is going to be iterative and it's going to be by trial and error and seeing in different places who's doing what and how they're doing it. I think another obvious thing is is venue, if we can get away from convention centers and in a way allow each fair to have its own personality um, based around a building. The fairs that I enjoy uh, most are fairs in which you know the venue to some extent dictates the experience. And I know there are all kinds of problems with the Grand Palais, but I do love being at FIAC, uh, which in many ways uh, is tied to being in that building. Yeah, I think you hit on something interesting, which is that if the current art fair model is negotiated around the logic of real estate, that the future model might be much more of a fair thinking of itself as a media or content business on some level, that you're providing a high quality experience to the person that's going there. You know, if you're doing that well, that means that people are going to buy art of the people that can afford to, but you're also creating an experience that opens up access and increases a kind of passion for art among the wider community, increases mindshare for art in that community. You know, I think you're starting to even see whether it's from simple things like food and that you can, you know, get sushi instead of sausage, although I still tend to go for the sausage in Basel because it's just a tradition. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure you want to be on record. <laughs> but that's your use in Germany, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. So whether, you know, you're starting to see this by fairs really increasing their food program or leveraging their sponsors to create much more ambitious art projects and art experiences than um, maybe the galleries can afford to put on. Um, and I think, you know, there, there are many things that we could see going beyond that. Um, that, to me, feels like what will be the most exciting aspect. You know, there's always that question of, particularly in a regional fair model, I go to a lot of fairs, we all go to a lot of fairs. It's nice when galleries do solo booths because you get to see one artist and it's not always the same and you're walking around. Other galleries who have become really successful and developed really solid fair strategies basically have a template now of, all right, we go and we have this kind of eye-grabbing work and then we have three of these over here and whatever. And they seem to you know, mint money out of those style booths. So it's an open question of whether that kind of media content model is going to be the most viable business model for galleries, but there might be a way to merge the two too. I also want to get Anna's input though, having, you know, kind of entered the art world in the last year in a, from a reporting perspective, what, you know, if you were taking a big red pen out now after seeing a, a wide swath of fairs, what, what were some of the things that you noticed? The things that stand out to me are when I see something that I don't always see. So you always see a lot of very wealthy, well-dressed, kind of fabulous looking people and it's really fun people watching and that's a staple of every fair. But um, at Expo Chicago, they had a booth by the National Resource Defense Council, the environmental group, and they had a booth um, by Human Rights Watch. Um, and both of those booths had uh, commissioned works by artists that spoke to the work that, 
speech advocacy group did. Um, I don't know the economics of why they're able to provide those booths. I don't know if, you know, who subsidized them. I know that, that uh, Tony, the fair director, just gave them the booth so that they could get people involved, but that stood out to me. Audiences or programming that um, relates to the art world or should be part of the art world, but isn't always, that's often what stands out to me amidst, you know, sometimes it can just feel like a blur. I mean, that makes sense to me. You know, the idea that these artists and galleries are working in a vacuum, they're not. You know, they're part of a wider culture and a broader discourse about creativity. And so understanding the art fair as a cultural event in many ways opens up enormous possibilities as to what an art fair can be. And yes, it is essentially a marketplace, but it can be so much more. So I think, you know, the level of nervousness that's attached to sort of opening up that space, I think in part comes from a fear of what might follow. And I have to say I'm against uh, all kinds of broad marketing initiatives. I will not allow cars on the floor at the Armory Show. To me, commercializing it is not the way to go. But at the same time, being able to bring in areas of uh, the culture we inhabit, to be open to different art forms, uh, for me, that's very important. I have a huge investment in the idea of technology mediating our art experience as we go forward. I think it's common sense that technology, you know, in a way is going to drive not just the economy, but also the art experience. And I'm very invested in the idea of finding ways to illustrate that through the fair. And that's why I invested in a Studio Drift booth last year. We worked with the Pace Gallery to create this floating concrete block. And we're working again with the Pace Gallery this year to try to deliver to our audience a, a, an example of a work in which technology mediates the art experience and so for me that's about reflecting a broader cultural shift so i like to see um the fair illustrating a little bit more what's going beyond or what's going on beyond the art world and finding examples of art and artists that in a way illustrate that broader cultural trend so i'm less interested in booths that are kind of supporting the worldwide fund for nature or some other cause i'm more interested in booths and artists uh, that in a way are illustrating broader trends at large. And so for me, that would be an example of how we might be able to advance the idea of an art fair. All right, so where in the art world are you going to be drinking white wine this week, Anna? I'd like to see the Alexander Calder show before I go to Europe for um, Fiac and Freeze. Um, so I'll probably go after work on Friday night because I think the Whitney's open late. I'm going to try to go up more towards your neck of the woods, Isaac, this weekend and uh, see the Rachel Rose show at Gavin Brown's Harlem location. I haven't actually been up to the Harlem location and I really like Rachel Rose's work. So I'm also not going to be straying too far from home. I'm going to be going to the Studio Museum to see Fictions, which is a show of 19 emerging artists of African descent that really looks fantastic. There's a there's a piece on Artsy about it that really made me want to go check it out. Also, it's close by, so it's a, it's a double win. And Ben, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I would encourage everybody to go online and look at the images and the coverage of the opening of the Zeitz Museum in Cape Town. Just come back from 10 days in South Africa. 
And I feel it's an extraordinary moment for African art artists and institutions, and I would encourage everybody to be a part of that. We were about to go to Mexico tomorrow and host a dinner in Mexico City tomorrow night for gallery weekend in Mexico. We've just canceled that dinner and uh, in in its place donated the money that we were going to put in to our dinner for the art world there to relief fund for victims of the earthquake in Mexico City. So I guess I'd do a shout out to all of our friends, collectors and galleries in Mexico City. I hope you're well and uh, we wish you the best of luck. Thanks so much to our guests for joining us, Ben especially. Thank you for coming. See you next time. Our producer this week, as always, editorial associate Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free. 